class. Please be quiet. Any special message for all the kids watching at home? Stay out of trouble. Welcome to the RPG Academy Network presents Film Studies. Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. My name is Michael, and we are here today for a film studies episode, and we're going to be discussing the 1993 version of The Three Musketeers, which was written for the screen by David Laurie and based on the novel by Alexandre Dumois. It was directed by Stephen Herrick, who also directed, among other things, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. This version of The Three Musketeers stars Kiefer Sutherland, Oliver Platt, and Charlie Sheen as our titular Three Musketeers, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, and a young Chris O'Donnell as D'Artagnan. So let's take a moment, take attendance, and see who is joining us today. PK, if you don't mind, say hello to everyone. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm PK Sullivan. I am a game designer. I work a lot with Fate. Uh, You may know me from The Three Rocketeers, which is certainly inspired by Three Musketeers. Uh, But it's in space with rocket packs, so who doesn't love that? Uh, I have also worked on Fate of Cthulhu and the Firefly RPG. Uh, You're also the GM. We did a trial of Firefly a couple of years back, so if anyone is interested in listening to that, you'll get to hear PK's excellent GMing of that system. Uh, So thank you, sir, for being here. I really appreciate it. And then also joining us today, first time on the show, first time we had a chance to to meet, but we had a great chat before we went live. So Ray, tell everybody, introduce yourself and tell everybody a little bit about yourself, please. Yeah, hello, hello. My name is Ray Najati. You can call me Ray. My pronouns are they, he, and I am a game designer from the Philippines. And let's see, my game Arhat that was published through Possum Creek Games just came out recently, a cozy, creepy game about ghosts hanging out in a haunted mansion. But uh, I'm also working on Blake Bayan Returning Home, which is a supernatural cyberpunk RPG, and also working on Apocalypse Keys, which is a which is a PBDA game about monsters holding back the apocalypse, having great big feelings, being really big superheroes. Uh, it's a it's a good time. And yeah, that both are going to be published through Epa Hat, which is really super exciting. And I'm really, really Super excited to be here. I can talk about movies and turning movies into TTRPGs all day. Uh, we Great. we have a rule where I can't watch certain movies here because I, I start thinking <laughs> about how to turn them into games. So, <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, just quickly, the, the game I'm currently working on, Action 12 Cinema, is all about movies. Like, that's basically taking a bad movie Ooh, and turning it into hopefully into a fun RPG. Awesome. And it uses D12 dice, which are objectively the best die, <laughs> at least in my opinion. <laughs> All right, so as far as content warnings, the movie is PG. I would expect our conversation to basically stay PG, PG PG-13, which means we do get one F-bomb, so make sure you use it wisely. So we like to start off with a short, like a one, two-sentence review of the movie and then a rating out of five stars. So if you don't mind, PK, what is your rating for this movie? Four or five stars. I love this movie. It's one of my favorites from the Pulp Revival, and it is the biggest adventure of 1993. Fantastic. And then, Ray, how about you? What's your uh, rating and review of the movie, please? Yeah, so for me, 
a time capsule of a movie with excellent villains and a few missed opportunities for gunpowder romance. I'm still going to give it 3.5 out of 5 stars, a star for each musketeer I liked, and 0.5 for the tragedy that almost stuck the landing that I really, really mm. liked. I was like, yeah, when we got to that part, I was just like, like really talking out loud to the screen. Oh, what's happening? <laughs> oh my gosh. I really love that part. It was so good. Those scenes were great. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and as for myself, um, I would say this is a grand example of a swashbuckling adventure and my nomination for a new appendix <laughs> in of suggested viewing for fledgling dungeon masters, five out of five stars. Uh, so let's do a quick recap of what happens in the movie. When Rochefort, Cardinal Richelieu's right-hand man, announces the official disbanding of the King's Musketeers, the three best refuse to throw down their swords. Athos the fighter, and drinker, Porthos the pirate and lover, and Aramis the priest and poet, arriving in Paris to join the musketeers, a young D'Artagnan uncovers the cardinal's plans to form an alliance with England by the mysterious Countess de Winter and depose of King Louis. Together, the force out, set out on a mission to protect their king and save France. So at this point, it's just kind of an open discussion. If there's any parts of the movie we want to talk about because we love them as a movie, and particularly if there's anything that we are like, this would relate to an RPG, or this would be a great RPG to run this scene or this type of game in. I'll kick things off. One of the things that I've always wanted to try to do in role-playing games, and very few rule sets allowed me to do that. I have a, I have a wider view of games now. But early in the movie, when we have our duels, where D'Artagnan has actually set up a duel with each of our musketeers, which I love, by the way. Charlie Sheen's character, Aramis, is actually the one that's two against one. Everybody else is one-on-one. -on -one. He takes the extra. And that his fight ends when he's able to move out of the way and have both of the Cardinal's men stab each other. And from the time I watched this movie, I wanted a way for that to happen in a game where dodging actually acted as an attack. And I think there are a few systems that would allow you to do that. I think Fate is actually one of those that you could do because you could use it as... I forget some of the terminology. I hope PK can help me here. But basically, it's like you you would use the scene as a way to create, I guess, an advantage maybe uh, that you, if you could take out both opponents by having them strike each other. So that's just for me, it was a touchstone of, yes, that's what I want to be able to do in a game is cause people to miss and hit each other mm -hmm. and still win the battle. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll go to you, Ray. Was there, again, this is anywhere in the movie, anything you want to talk about? What's something that stuck out to you? Oh, I really, really, really love the villains. Like, Tim Curry is an absolute gift, an absolute international treasure. I love Tim Curry so much. And I thought, like, he really was such a compelling villain the whole time. And I think that is such a great... I also love the other villain, like, his second... In command was really amazing. Uh, Rochefort, Maka, yeah. Winscott, I think is his. Yeah. That is smelly oh my kind of a cheese. Right, right. Every time he was on screen, also there was like a little bit of like, I think it's really hard not to have some sort of central attention when there's like swords involved and they're very close. I mean, thirsty sword lesbians is a thing for a reason. <laughs> but, you know, that being said, those two villains were like absolutely amazing. I think it's really great for GMs, especially because. It's really like one of the challenges is to create a compelling set of villains that will keep your players like really engaged. And I think these two were a masterclass on how a GM could do it. Like, cause they were, they're both villainous in very different ways. And it was super, super fun to watch. I mean, Tim Curry's very good at eating the scenery, but I think he was pretty good at sharing it most of the time. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was, it was really great fun for me there. 
Fantastic. And PK. I mean, what's not to love about this entire movie, basically? Yeah. I, it, it's just a great adventure flick. Uh, from the, from the very opening scenes of, you know, Rochefort disbanding the musketeers and sort of setting up that tension for the, the main emotional conflict. And then, uh, it immediately cuts to a very silly scene of D'Artagnan in a duel because, you know, he slept with some dude's sister, right? <laughs> and that guy, by the way, is played by Paul McGann, who is a wonderful actor, uh, was the eighth doctor, sort of the one who is only in the uh, uh, American That's TV right. show right. movie. I think he's like the undisputed MVP of this movie because <laughs> oh, yeah. just Every the time scenes he that he's up. in, yeah. it, it's just, it's great. It's a recurring NPC <laughs> who's not really a, he's just sort of a, a foil, but not really the villain. Mm-hmm. And Comic relief again. I think he was used expertly. Just yeah. like it's like a spice to go to PK's other passion, cooking. Just enough of Gerard really made this work. For he, him. he Gerard definitely stands out and like makes his stamp on every scene, which it's it's so interesting to see what they did there. This time when I watched it, I paid a lot more attention to the historical context of this movie and the story, really. So. When it was written in 1844, it was, even for that time, it was historical fiction. Uh, because Dumas was writing about a time period that was more than 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was as if we were writing about the American frontier in 1809 or 1800. Um, that sort of thing. Because, so he's 200 years removed, and it's definitely a romanticized version of the Musketeers and what it means. But it's also 1844, after France has gone through some very turbulent times, and the novel actually is very critical of the monarchy overall, which is not something that really comes into the film adaptations much. And when I was doing a little bit of research on the book, I found it interesting that it was originally serialized, which I had known for quite a while, even back when I first read it in high school, but I didn't realize that it was serialized in a, and I'm going to butcher this because I don't speak French, but in a fouetant, it's a section of a French newspaper that is in the political section, Oh, but isn't necessarily political news. Mm -hmm. So even from the get-go, this, what we consider a romping, just swashbuckling romantic adventure was very political in nature. And it's interesting to see how, through the lens of time, things change and perspectives on the story shift as new people retell it and adapt it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I had no idea. I knew it was based, you know, obviously the movie's based on the novel, and the novel's based loosely on some actual historical figures. Uh, D'Artagnan was a real uh, musketeer. I believe Athos was. I don't think... Aramis, like of the three musketeers, I think one or two of them were based off real people. I think the other was completely fictionalized. From a role playing game standpoint, though, what I like, I try to imagine this was a game. Mm-hmm. Like, again, that, that's kind of my mindset. And what I think happened is that D'Artagnan's dad is the, was the original character oh, that a player was playing. And their character died. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I know. Rather than bring in the cousin or the brother, right. I'll bring in my son. Because mm-hmm. then you get that great moment where the son is ultimately able to get revenge and kill the NPC who killed the original character. 
So I really like looking at it through that lens of these are, you know, established characters bringing in the new youngster character, showing them the ropes. We have their little meet cute. It's all great. But there's already a camaraderie and familiarity because it's the same player playing a new character in an existing campaign. Like, that's that's my headcanon. <laughs> uh, so, Ray, anything else? Again, any any aspect of the movie and any way you want to tie it to role-playing games, feel free. Yeah. So I think, like, going back to my one-sentence review, I really loved most of the mu- Musketeers. Like, it's hard to pick a favorite among the main three. I loved all of them. I think I slightly love Aramis a little more because I'm such a... I really liked that mirroring between the Cardinal and, and Aramis being a man of faith. And then, you know, that really great moment with the with the gunshot. My partner, because I watched it with my partner. He turned to me. He was like, is he dead? Is he? What, what's going on? And I was like, oh, yeah. I remembered this moment. It's going to be such a great reveal. I really love that. Uh, and so, like, I really love that kind of like this whole warrior poet situation that Aramis has mm. going on is fantastic. For me, the weakest link was definitely Chris O'Donnell. Like, I could tell what they were going for. So I saw that Brad Pitt was in the running, and I couldn't help but imagine what that would have been like. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it would have really been categorically better, but there's something about Chris O'Donnell that just wasn't working for me. Like, just couldn't quite hit that charm completely. Though I did like him in that scene with Milady de Winter that was like... That was when I started to see, like, oh, okay, this is probably why they got Chris O'Donnell. But the rest of the times, especially the first act, I was like, I want to see more of the other musketeers because D'Artagnan is, like, really, really getting on my nerves. <laughs> so it felt, so it felt like some... a lot of PvP between the players going, like, I'm going to duel you. No, I'm going to duel you. And I was like, oh, I've had players like this. I've been one of these players. <laughs> I've been this person, right? So, yeah. so I, I do want to circle back uh, to that specifically. But PK, I saw your tweets when you were watching the movie, and you also think O'Donnell was the weak link here. He, O'Donnell is, I mean, he's the youngest of the cast. Um, mm. Oh, that's also and true, right. I, so you said, like, oh, Brad Pitt was in the running. And yeah, I would like to have seen that, but also Brad Pitt wasn't Brad Pitt yet. Like, he didn't have, he was pretty, but I don't know that he had his acting chops really. Because even in Interview with the Vampire, which is, I think, a year after this. Right. Um, movie, yeah. He's, he's pretty, he's pretty stiff there. That's true. Um, that's true. So, you know, I don't. He was depending on those, like, vampire eyes yeah. to do most mm-hmm. of the acting. Right? So, so. Uh, I mean,. It's hard to say. It, it is. It's hard to say. Who who knows? Chris O'Donnell, I think, was the weak link here. He just didn't sell it the way everybody else did. Uh, for yeah. me, the standout, um, I consider this an Oliver Platt film. Oh, mm-hmm. gosh. Like, he was so like, good. Porthos uh, his, is amazing. His Porthos is so true to the character of Porthos from the novels without being just... like It is an adaptation. It, he does have his own spin on it but he is porthos it it just his joie de vivre his love of life everything he does he has a good time like he's the person who's just like oh we're in the middle of a race who wants some champagne yeah right? like, so good so good who does that um i love that and i loved all his gadgets like all his mm-hmm, really mm-hmm. interesting weapons super super cool like this was a player who invested in yep. leveling up and getting all of those interesting yes like, absolutely yeah super cool the, porthos is definitely the character who 
takes the options that are like yeah. niche and just because what the one time that they work, he's just like, Oh my god, did you see that? <laughs> like he, <laughs> like he has a bolo or a bola. Yeah. Like he throws yeah. after Definitely again. wrote a crit with that bolo. I'm just gonna yeah. say that. <laughs> um <laughs> And then, like, he's, he's also just so funny and charming at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. going back to the Sham King quote, like, he pops out of the, the roof of the carriage and he's like, champagne! <laughs> in his, you know, very fancy pretentious. We're in the middle of a chase! Parthus is like, you're right. Something red. Something and, like, in red. disappears yeah. back so into good. the carriage. So good. <laughs> so charming. Um, Absolutely. And then with the bullet, or bullet, he, he throws it, he hits the guy in the face, and he goes, God, I love my work. Which is, like, so, which is absolutely something a player would say at the table. True, like, true. they, they nail that last attack, they knock the, the, the Cardinal's guard out, and they're just like, yes. So I'm going to say that I think that Porthos is exactly who I am when I play a role-playing <laughs> game. Like, he's making these, like, basically, how you say that? Anachronistic? Yes. Where it's, like, out of the time period. It's like when he says, um, O'Donnell, the, the twit of the month. Like, that's not something you would probably say in the 1600s. It's basically like the box of the month. And he has all these little lines that, again, they're just, they don't really fit the story themselves. They fit with his character, but they don't fit with the story. And that's how I am. Like, I'm seeing jokes that... You know, they're, they don't mean anything in the in the scene, but at the table, they're funny. Mm. Um, so I want to ask, so Ray, which, which uh, musketeer, including D'Artagnan, do you think you most embody at the table? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I think, you know what? I think what I would do is I think I'd be making an Aramis, but I'm definitely Athos. I am definitely this angsty, like, I'll create this, like, backstory, like, you know, and then there was this man who married this woman and, you know, like, I'd like when that tragedy was unfolding, I have seriously had moments with my GM where they, because like, uh, the GMs I regularly play with, they know I love giving these daggers where I just create an NPC like that. And then, and the GM is like, thank you. I will now hurt you in the future, uh, in a way that you enjoy. So definitely, <laughs> I just, I would definitely do that. As Kiefer Sutherland, uh, I just, I just really loved that character. It was super, super compelling for me. And, and also, which leads me to like my favorite, even though the femmes weren't really done, you know, they were kind of done dirty in this movie, which is very typical of the time, uh, as, as is the case with these things. But I do think Milady de Winter was such a compelling character. And I just really loved how interesting she was from the start. And then when, when Kiefer Sullivan, when Athos was talking about, you know, the past, I was like, oh my gosh, that has to be Milady de Winter. It has to connect this way. I can feel it in my bones. Uh, I felt, I, it felt really good when that was true. And then the scenes between them was just so compelling. I was like thinking, this is both really good writing, but also I can see this being really good role playing happening at the table. Like yeah. I've been in, I've been in scenes with this, like when Milady de Winter, was like, what has this world ever done for me? I was like, I really, I felt it, you know? I really, ah, uh, so I really, I was so emotional during every scene between her and and, uh, and Aethys. I really, really love that so much. Um, which makes me think, like, if this was a game, I was thinking of how I would try to deliver that same, like, connection. Because it feels like the entanglements are very important for some of the characters, right? Like, for example, Art- D'Artagnan and his father right and then 
also like the connections between Athos and Porthos, right? I, I feel like the character Porthos is so connected to all the PCs, right? Uh, so I really think I would probably do a hack of Hearts of Wulin, which is a PBTA game by Francis Lowell. And so it's a, it's originally a wuxia game. So it's really inspired by entanglements and fighting and drama, but there are lots of hacks for it already that come with the original book that are really cool. Uh, there's even one that's based on like revolutionary France. So it's not going to be too much of a, of a shift mm. towards doing something like this. So I, and in Hearts of Wulin, you're, Every time you you only earn XP when you engage with your entanglements with these NPCs or PCs, right? So I feel like my favorite parts in the film were when that was happening. So I definitely lean into it if I was if I was doing a hack for it. But yeah, <laughs> uh, PK, which uh, which of the titular or D'Artagnan uh, musketeer do you think you would most embody at the table? This is hard because there's a little bit of all of them in the way that I play. Because, like I, I have the like sort of dry, wry sense of humor at the table that Athos has, mm-hmm. but I'm definitely the planner and the schemer that Aramis is. Ooh. I'm the one who's sort of like when things hit the tape, like when things get going, I'm like okay, looking a few steps ahead and making a plan and then adapting, uh, and that's very much what Aramis is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come through much in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, just because there, this movie is very action or drama. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, um, exposition or build up scenes anywhere. It's, right, right. It, it's action or drama, which is fine. Mm-hmm. I like it. It works for the film and the pacing is great, but it doesn't let a character like Aramis shine quite the way he could. Mm-hmm. Um, if you watch Man in the Iron Mask, which is based on one of the right. sequel novels, uh, Jeremy Irons, uh, his Aramis, uh, is much closer to what I play at the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also, um, my characters tend to have, uh, the, the joie de vivre of Porthos. Uh, you know, just like, I try to play characters who are happy to be there, who are like, because I like adventure games. Um, mm-hmm. So I, if I'm playing an adventure game, I want to play a character who wants to go on an adventure. Um, so, you know, there's definitely the, the squealing man-child <laughs> clapping his hands giddily uh, in there in, in when, I, when I play my games. Yeah, actually... Yeah, again, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you know, I'll say that, um, again, Porthos is the one character who... Who who knows he's playing that character? Because you know, Athos has this tragic backstory that the DM brings back in. D'Artagnan has a sort of a revenge plot with he has connections right. to both his dad and unknowingly to the man who killed his dad, who he will interact with. Um, and Aramis obviously has connection to the main villain of the story, which is the Cardinal. Porthos is just there because he likes the other characters. Like mm-hmm. he, his his bonds are to them. We don't have any connection because everyone he mentions is a lie. The Queen of America and the Tsar of whatever he gets the acts from. So I just, again, that's my mentality when I come to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then quickly I want to mention, I think it's, it's really, again, I think the script for this is actually better than you would probably think on how well it tells the story. So even in that, that first dual scenario where the, the Cardinals men show up and in that fight, how does it end? Aramis 
the two guards kill themselves. He doesn't hurt anybody. He protects himself and then manages it for them to kill themselves. Uh, D'Artagnan doesn't kill his enemy. Basically, he gets him into a situa- situation where he falls to his death. Mm-hmm. And then Porthos uses a gadget and I assume knocks the person out. We don't know for sure. Right. But Athos kills a guy mm-hmm. and he straight up murders that guy. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, that is like backstory development in the drama, which again, from a role playing, from the, in the action, I think from a role playing game standpoint, is exactly what should happen. The combat should not be separate from the role play. The combat and the role play should marry together. And I think that is a great uh, version of how you could do that. So you allow the characters to succeed, but you also get them to tell us about themselves as they do it. The ways and hows that they succeed in combat are part of the story, not separate from it. So I'm sorry, Ray, I stepped on you. What did you want to oh, say? Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say, like, I loved your question, Michael, about which of the three musketeers we'd be. And so I wanted to ask the both of you, which of the NPCs would you enjoy playing the most as a GM? Oh. So I probably would do a good job with Gerard because mm. I can be that heel pretty easily. Um but I actually think Tim Curry as, as Count Richelieu is, is who I want to be. <laughs> Gerard is who I probably would actually be. PK? Um, I would love to play Rochefort. Ooh, you know, just nice. that the very menacing. Like, and he, the thing that I love about him is he is menacing and dangerous, but everything about him is cool. He never gets hot. He never gets angry. He never really bursts out at anybody uh he does briefly once um in private after the cardinal dresses him down and like just you know tim curry does his amazing just like put down on him and leaves then rochefort just spins draws his sword and slices the candles and then names them athos porthos and aramis yeah that's the only time you see him lose a bit of composure uh, which is just, even in uh, his first meeting with those three, which is a scene or two later, he's outnumbered three to one, and he's just cool as a cucumber. And I love that because it gets under your player's skins mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when they're just like, aha, we have the upper hand. Why are you not panicking? Well, the situation right. is under control. Like, you're clearly not going to kill him you're, you know, he's the, the head of the Cardinal's Guards. You're not going to kill him here when it would just endanger everything you believe in. So I also want to note from a script standpoint that that introduction of the names is important because he names those candles in the same order that we meet the oh, three Musketeers. But we don't get names for Athos or Aramis, only for Porthos, but that we still meet them in the same order that he uh, cut the candles, which I think, again, is, is really good screenwriting. Wow, that's cool. Uh, a couple other things that I pulled out. I, I apologize. So, Ray, what, what would your answer be? So who do you think you would be at the table? Yeah, I mean, I love... So many of these NPCs, it it would be really hard to pick. Uh, but I think definitely, I really love the complexity of Milady de Winter, and it would be really tough to pull off. And it would be a really fun challenge as a GM just to pull off how nuanced, because it's very easy to slip up with a character like Milady de Winter, right? Like it would be too easy. Like she she really nailed this whole like she's dangerous. 
but she, you could also tell she she was a tragic fig figure at the same mm-hmm. time. So just absolutely stunning. I really I, I love her so much. And for my money, she still has the best line in the movie. In a line in a movie that has really good lines mm-hmm. and you know really funny ones, but the with a flick of my wrist, I could change your religion. Yeah, to me, so that's good. the best so best good. line in the entire movie. I I laughed so hard. Yeah, oh, she was amazing. Yeah, it's, absolutely amazing. It's a bit, yeah. Uh, so a couple other things I pulled out from a role-playing game standpoint is, and I think this was more Disney PG, but some of the more gruesome violence is actually done in shadow, which is sort of like a line veil situation. So like, yeah, so like, you know, torture might be a veil. We know that's going to be in there, but we don't want to really, really see it. So even though we know these people are being uh, killed, I think the, the most gruesome death in the movie is the the guard, sort of the deformed dungeon Master, I guess. I don't know who gets killed by uh, Porthos. But beyond that, most of the violence is all very, you know, you, there's not a lot of blood and gore with the violence. So I think that might be an example of how lines and veils could be used in a story. But you still have the the adventure, but you just don't deal with the gruesomeness of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think, like, because a lot of GMs struggle some... Well, yeah, in my experience, like, there are a lot of GMs who struggle with what a veil means, and I think this movie is a really perfect example of how to frame it, how to describe it, how to have something happen off screen, but still feel its effect in a really great mm-hmm. way. So yeah, I, I absolutely agree. That's a good catch. Uh, from a from a GM standpoint, one of the things I think is pretty interesting, too, is that we don't have our main characters at the Musketeer headquarters when it's disbanded. And I just think that's an interesting idea from, again, from a GM standpoint, because my experience, most players, they're going to want to start a fight right then. Mm. Like, they're going to be like, no, we won't. And then you're and like, that's, you know, that's not what we want. And as a DM, I want my players to be able to drive this, the story, have agency to make change. So choosing which scenes they're in and they're not is actually, it's one of the subtle tips that you can do as a GM. And, you know, you could have any reason why they're not there. Maybe even the players say they're not going, but if, but if you don't want them to have that interaction there, have them find out about something that happened when they were away. Uh, I just think that's a good way to keep your villains from being m- murdered right off the bat. Or, you know, the classic, I shoot the king in the face with my crossbow. Okay, well, I guess we're doing that now. That You know, the, the adventure is going a different way. Uh, but I also think it talks about the buy-in of the players to the type of story you're playing. Because to PK's point, when our characters do actually confront Rochefort in the tavern when they go to arrest them, they had him three to one. Why didn't they just kill him there? You can make the argument that was a smart play, but from the story we're telling, it makes a lot more sense to be like, you know what? D'Artagnan needs to be the one who kills this guy because of his character's connection to the story. So I like to think that was the players being like, no, we're going to make sure D'Artagnan kills him. So, So then the DM could put him there knowing that the players won't actually take the bait because they're in on it. They, they have the buy-in for what we're telling. And they know that the D'Artagnan character has to be the one who kills him for the fulfillment of the story. It has to be in the right moment. So for me, this is all about player buy-in to the type of story that you're all telling together. Mm-hmm. All right. So anything else? Again, feel free to jump anywhere. Anything you want to talk about, Ray, feel free. I've got some, some more notes, but I want other people to jump in. So one thing I appreciated, I mentioned in the how the game sort of goes gas break, gas break between drama and adventure scenes is since we didn't get a planning or a organizing or strategy scene at all once they discover the plot all we get is a montage of musketeers across the country opening wine cellars and digging in hay mounds and pulling out their their tabards 
and swords as the the main heroes ride back to Paris. So, like, it's just a quick montage of, okay, that's the plot, brief montage, and now we are there and things are going to happen. So, it keeps people engaged without giving them, and lets them add a bit of color to the the scene, the characters, the story, without getting bogged down in a four-hour planning session for, you know, how do we stop a an ambush? Just, just play it out. <laughs> um, I mean, I, it's something I learned reading the leverage RPG. It's, you know, you get the bare bones of your plan and then you jump in because the dice are going to happen. The GM is going to react and the plan isn't going to go according to, to plan. Things will happen. So people need to be able to adapt and adjust. It's helpful if the game provides you tools for adjusting a plan, uh, either flashbacks or preparedness in gumshoe, things like that, where you can say, well, no, the plan was actually, and it lets you as players still feel clever and have competent characters without just making it a cakewalk. There are still mechanisms in the game for people to engage with, to be like, Okay, cool. It's all still going to, according to plan, even though it's not the plan that you necessarily discussed ahead of time. Yeah, that's one element of role-playing games that I I still struggle with um, from a conceptual level. That, like, if you enjoy watching a heist film, most of the time, the drama comes from when the heist doesn't go to plan. There are exceptions, but for the most part is we get a planning scene and we know this is what's going to happen. And then we as the audience are going to see where that's going to collapse first. So like in in the planning phase, we learn, you know, my brother is going to be the guard and he's going to basically let us knock him out. And then before they get to that point, we see as the audience that they get pulled for another duty or there's a trainee or something is throwing a little bit of gums in the works. But I've also often found that players... When, as the DM, I don't let their plan work as they planned it exactly, where I'm just trying to add in drama, sometimes they think it's more of a, well, the DM didn't want us to succeed. Or this, you know, this because you knew our plan, you're, you're making it harder. But I just feel like, but that's my job. I'm not, I'm not making it impossible. I'm adding some drama in. And I just I have found I struggle with maybe communicating what I'm doing is, and how I'm trying to make the game more fun rather than just taking away your plan. So do either of you have any suggestion, advice, or thought on how you can interject drama by making the plan not work out, but at the same time not feel like we're stepping on players' agency, or they, they take two hours to plan something, and then it gets screwed up in five minutes, which I think is what's supposed to happen. But uh, Ray, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think definitely that's one of the reasons I love Blades of the Dark so much, because it's a it's a system that focuses on doing as little gathering information as as you need and then just jumping straight into it and so what happens is mechanically it separates the player from the character right because it tells you you the player don't really know exactly what's going on but your character does your character Mm -hmm. is prepared right and so it's it takes a while for people to like because i used to play shadowrun a lot and we would get bogged down in the planning it would take like one whole session six hours of planning and then it would just be 
a slog to get through, right? And the, the GM would have the exact same problem that you're talking about. So in Blades, it's like about 15 minutes, right? Gathering like information a little bit, just jumping in. And then what's really cool is like separating the idea. So this happened recently when I was running Blades in the Dark uh, on actual play. And so uh, Sean was like, okay, so like I had shocked the players completely, but then Sean is like, okay, so this is when the camera zooms in onto the cable that moves through the train and it gets to the other side. And so all that has to happen is mechanically, the players just have to pay stress like to, for the flashback and instill roll to see how. So there's still a bit of drama because the, the player, they didn't know what was going on. The character does, but you still have to see if it works. Right. And mm -hmm. that's where the dice still come in. So because the dice are ultimately the arbiter of the situation, there's, there's a lot less pressure on the GM to not be the quotation mark bad guy. Right. And it's the it's the dice that helps set up that drama because it's true. I mean, I feel like it's really necessary to set up that drama because it would just be kind of boring if if you plan for every contingency and then it just went off without a hitch, then. You know, right? So, but yeah, that's why I, I think of Blades in the Dark. Actually, when I was watching this, I was kind of thinking it fits in Blades sometimes, except for the lack of a downtime phase, right? Because this this movie is like, has a really nice clip, a really good pace. But yeah, so those are my thoughts. But what do you think, Phil? So the, the big thing is you need to have some sort of, well, two things. You need to communicate ahead of time, set expectations of, hey, we're going into a heist or we're going into some some situation where there's a plan and the plan is going to change. You know, set that expectation ahead of time so it doesn't come as a surprise. Mm -hmm. Then the other thing is you need to give the players tools to be able to adjust to the plan and still feel as if their characters have agency in the game. So there are any number of RPGs that do this. Blades in the Dark, Leverage, both great examples. Mm -hmm. um, one, actually, Firefly probably does this uh, mm -hmm, just as well mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, because of the way that the assets work and the way that characters can create new things in a scene mm -hmm. without having to, without without having to like completely step out from the core loop of the dice rolls there. I was actually uh, a couple of weeks ago playing in uh, one of my home games, and uh, the last few sessions have been for building up to a heist. The party thief was told, hey, you should go steal this thing, and it's basically on pain of death, right? So the rest of the party is just like, well, we're not thieves, we don't really want to break the law, but we also don't want you to die. And what you're stealing is potentially very dangerous. So how do we help you steal it, but not give it to the people who are going to do terrible things with it? Um, so, you know, keep you alive and that sort of thing. So we had discussions and planning. We did an entire session of discussion and planning. We come back for the next session and I'm like, okay, we have the bare bones of a plan. Let's jump into it. We got to, cause we're going to have to adapt. Things aren't going to go according to plan. So, like, this is a heist. This is what what you do. And we get into it, and it's not a heist. Ooh. It turns out it's uh, it's basically, um, you know, zombie night uh, at, the, at the game store. So, like, even that level of, like, 
why did we spend an entire session planning for a heist if it's not a heist? You know, set the expectations, get people involved, and you know, we could have we could have been doing our zombie dungeon crawl the week before, right? We could have jumped into right, this right. if we hadn't gotten bogged down. Um and I think the the planning comes from a very defensive style of play of right. like, oh, I don't want I don't want something bad to happen. Mm-hmm. But that's that's what the game is. Like that even even in an adventure game, you know, you are overcoming challenges and obstacles. If you just plan for everything to go smoothly, there's no drama. Um so I'm much more a fan of just getting everybody on board with hey, let's have a quick and messy plan. Regardless of if it's a heist, if it's a uh if if it's an assault, whatever whatever you're doing, have a quick and messy plan, go in, and then hopefully play a game that gives you some tools to adapt to that in a way that is consistent in the fiction and lets you feel as if your characters are competent and you know thinking ahead more than you are. Right, right. Because we are here. I, I am a firm believer that I like playing characters that are smarter than me. Right. Mm-hmm. So, which is not too difficult, but you know, same. <laughs> right. And also, like coming back to your point, Michael. Right. Like I feel because it's right. Like compared to when I used to run games, like it really, and this still happens in some spaces, right, where there's this very adversarial relationship between the GM and the players. When definitely, like, that's not, in my mind, right, that is not the role I play as a GM. Like, I'm here to make things exciting, to provide the obstacles and challenges, because how can you be a hero? How can you be cool? Unless those things are happening, right? Like, our three musketeers were super awesome because they were going against some, you know, horrific odds against, like, the men of the cardinal, right? And that's what made it super interesting. So... I think like definitely shifting that perspective and and building this like relationship of trust of knowing like, okay, the GM is going to make things difficult for me. Like it's gotten to the point where I've gotten so used to it that when a GM is too easy on me, I feel like I'm missing out on something, right? Where I'm Mm -hmm. like, hmm, you could have like gone in harder, like picked up one of those daggers I set aside for you with the name of the person I'm angsting over, right? So, uh, or something similar. So definitely, but but I think that really speaks to like, I feel like in general, we're shifting the conversation towards that anyway, right? And the perspective, but it's a good point. Yeah, I think some of it is is knowing where your players find their fun. Mm. And this could change table to table, right. night to night, group to group. So if the players want to have fun by coming up with a bulletproof heist, that's one type of fun. If we want their characters to deal with the unraveling of what they thought was a bulletproof plan, that's a different type of fun. And I think so the DM knowing where they should interject their influence. If it's the players wanting to have fun coming up with a perfect heist, then they as the DM need to be able to have all the information of this is when the this is when this is going to happen. These are your obstacles. These are the guards. This is how long it takes for them to get from point A to point B. So they can plan just like an Ocean's Eleven or Ocean's Twelve type of thing versus characters who are going to deal with the unknowns. And then the DM 
throws in those obstacles during the heist. I think either can work for me. I would more I would have more fun in the character version. But I think my, that might be the avenue to think about it is who's having fun, the characters or the players. Right. Obviously, players both ways, but just knowing wh- what they're looking for so that you can plan accordingly. <laughs> A quick note, just I saw my, I have some notes I took. <clears throat> I, my personal headcanon is that the player who is playing Aramis is normally the horny bard. And they have decided that they want to try to play a chase character. And the DM's just like, okay, great. And then now is going to be throwing women after them just because it would be funny to try to like tease them into their old ways when they're trying to play a different character. Um, another kind of a set piece I've tried before and failed is the let's rescue one of our own from the headman's noose, hangman's noose sort of situation. Do either of you have any experience running those and do you have any advice on a good way to do it uh i'll start with you this time ray so have you ever had that rescue of either an npc or a player from the hangman's new situation gallows even like a jail cell situation yeah yeah you know i tend to i tend to create so i'm sort of known as an npc pinata you just like hit me a little bit of of npc comes out right uh (laughs) and so i do tend to create npcs that I want the players to get attached to, right? And and my players who've been with me for a long time know this, and they try to resist getting attached, but then they still go, you're going to do something terrible to this to this NPC. I just know it. So I have put them in that situation, and the way that I try to pull it off is depending on, like, if it's a public execution, if it's a prison thing, I try to make the stakes really dire, but I also try to feed the players a lot of information that they would know as characters, right? So for example, it would be like, I think like basing it on the Three Musketeers, I might have, because we do have the Three Musketeers show up, right, really dramatically in very cool ways. So I would probably be like, okay, so you know that D'Artagnan, like you're going to be here, you're being dragged over. I would probably entice the player with, you're going to get more information about what really happened to your father, right? Like you just, you know, if they if they play along, but then I would be like, okay, each of you have a chance. Like, where are you going to set yourselves up? Like how I would probably ask the Aramis character, like, how do you find the perfect costume to be exactly where you need to be in this moment? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's a very dire situation, but I'm going to give the players a chance to like, okay, you're going to have this one cool moment to really like, you know? Yeah. I think the genius of that from the GM standpoint is that allowing Aramis and Pathos, who have already infiltrated yeah, the priest and the hang and exactly. the, the person, so we don't have to deal with that. We just that's why they're already there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that was a genius uh, element of, of that part. Mm-hmm. Um, I had another thing; I lost it. So PK, anything from you on that setup? Uh, I've never run rescue one person from from the gallows or anything, but I have had to do a jailbreak. D and D fourth edition, the oh, fourth first edition. published module. Um, keep on the shadow. That's right. Like that. Oh my gosh, I started going back um, in time. Anyway, yes, I, yeah, uh, that's fun. That's uh, that actually was my first. Uh, would have been my first TPK <gasps> if the uh, no module didn't specify that they were taking prisoners uh, wow. because they, you know, they captured all the characters yeah. uh, because they were looking to use them or sell them for slave labor. So all the, like, it's a total TPK. It was like five rounds of combat, and they never managed to drop a minion. No, it was, it was bad. It oh, these buddies could be bad cool. dice rolls. 
Wow. Um, so I took everybody out and like scooped them up, dropped them in, in the jail cell. <laughs> the next week comes back and I'm like, all right, so, you know, here you go. This is, this is your dungeon for the time being escaping the jail. So the, the trick for that was letting them use their abilities in clever ways. Ooh. So like I hadn't specified which cell each character was in. So the sword mage, uh, keep in mind they're like level one or two. Sword mage was like, well, if I can be here, I think I'm in range to call my sword to myself. Um, and the, that was, Very the, cool. I, I don't remember the whole plan, but that was the start of the plan. That is so um, cool. I love that ability yeah. of the sword mage. That is like super Yeah. Bad. Yeah. I th- and I think at that level, it's like within 30 feet, you can mm-hmm. like call it to yourself. So he's like, if I'm in this cell and I like squeeze into the corner, <laughs> I can, I'm like, you don't have to squeeze in the corner. I'll let you do it. But yeah. So, <laughs> um, it's a lot when characters are in that's sort of powerless phase because, you know, they don't have their equipment. They don't have the tools and toys that they usually would use to overcome obstacles. They're going to have to rely on their natural abilities, start getting clever or start using their non gear abilities in interesting ways. And I think encouraging that is a lot of fun. Very cool. Um, so more headcanon. Mm-hmm. So my belief is that session one of this game was everything up until the the duel that the Cardinals men interrupted. And that was the end of the session. And then whoever was playing D'Artagnan couldn't come the next session. Oh. So they're like, okay, I know what to do. Your character will get captured and then we'll play through email <laughs> or text while you miss the session. He got then all that back information, got to see the countess, Very learn cool. what the true plan Very was. Cool. And then the beginning of the third session is when they all came back together and they rescued him and he was able to download all that information. So uh, in my mind, there was even a retcon where originally he rode off with them and they changed it when they found out he couldn't come to be getting captured as well. Because a retcon is a, a superpower a DM has. It should be used sparingly, but it can be used to great effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things that I have suggested multiple times um, throughout the course of the podcast is to give what I call villainous cutscenes. Yeah. So much like right. the audience of a movie we get to see what the villains are up to, even though our characters shouldn't know that. Mm-hmm. We just have a little, like, you know, five-minute scene of, you know, the cardinal sending the the pigeons so that you know there's going to be bounty hunters after you or those types of things. Just to just to kind of touch base on what the villains are up to so that the, the story feels more, co- more coherent, even though I kind of have the idea what they're doing. I'm fine with the players knowing it, too. Their characters shouldn't, but the players should. And that's I a feel. lot of fun. Uh, yeah. It yeah. is a lot of fun. You get to, like, really get to be in the evil. And because usually when the players meet the bad guys, they kill each other. Yeah. But so this is your chance to be the villain. And, again, you have free reign to be as villainous as you want. Mm-hmm. And, again, not to glorify, but, you know, torturing um, right. prisoners or whatever the case, whatever your evil plans are, you can be as evil as you want without being interrupted. And it lets the players learn to hate this person even right. more. So right. when they do get together, they want to kill them even more. Or defeat them, whatever the case may be. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I actually, felt like that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, actually, the movie starts with a villainous scene. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm, none, yes. none of our heroes are in that opening scene. We see Rochefort disbanding the musketeers. That's how the movie starts. So it doesn't involve any of the heroes. That's, pr- in, in terms of the game table, that's box text prologue 
that the GM is reading to the players, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is a really interesting way to start the game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah from sure. a move standpoint, it was it, it's kind of like odd, you know, just this really creepy, almost like. Um, you know, uh, supernatural Satanist sort of like, you know, the, the imagery on the boat is obviously yeah, very dark and, you yeah. know, and there's like the fog rolling. It's, it's right. very sort of creepy yeah. to, to introduce your main The background. underwater so, yeah, river connected to the prison. You know, just yeah. love to see it. Love to see it. <laughs> yeah, and like, also going back to that pigeon scene because that's so essential for the players to see because that's when the GM got to say, you know, all for one and all for me. I was like, oh, Perfect. Mm. How else are you going to be able yes. to do that? Right. And so, yeah. and having the villain say this away from the PCs where they can't do anything, even more perfect. Right. Just to really build up that, that like relationship. Really, really cool. And I feel like more, it also like helps the players like further separate like what's going on for me as a player and what's going on for me as a character are not necessarily always the same thing. Right. So Mm -hmm. always remember to like work with your GM to like build a really cool story and experience together. So that's a lot of fun. Um, As a GM, I'm a big fan of what I call the fireside chats. And to PK's point, this movie has a really strong pace. Like you're, you're pretty much going the whole time, but there's one scene Mm. where we actually stop and they have their moment in the tavern where Porthos teaches them how to kiss and Aramis talks about poetry. But the key element of that scene is Athos's backstory. Yes, exactly. Right. We have to have that moment before we can get the payoff mm-hmm. at the end. So, again, you don't have to do it all the time. I'm a big fan of montaging through travel. If it takes seven days to get to the Cave of Wonder, seven days have passed. You're now at the Cave of Wonder because that's where I want to get to because that's where the fun will be. Mm-hmm. But occasionally I like to have the, you've been traveling for three days, you know, nothing's going on, but you're all sitting around the campfire. Who's got something on their mind? Like, like I will just say, this is a role play scene. I want you to talk to each other in character. Just kind of go, you know. And I'll sort of sit back as the DM, and and I want those sorts of things to start coming out where people's backstory has a chance. They're never going to talk about that if, unless you give them the opportunity to. And to me, that was a DM saying, "We've had a lot of action. Let's take a few moments and let's just let our characters talk to each other." Yeah, and actually, what I would do to like set up that RP scene in that particular moment. I would ask the player who is Porthos to be like, okay, so D'Artagnan is like across from you, right? And so what is it that you're going to teach him that he wouldn't learn anywhere else? Who are, You are mm-hmm. the only one who can teach this. What would it be? And then the PC is like, I'm going to teach him how important the kiss is, right? And so that's a very, like, I feel like a great way to, like, help encourage those connections and and RP moments is to have a really compelling question as a GM to, like, start things off, right? So That's great. I love that. (laughs) That is a great tip. Uh, PK, anything for sort of fostering a role play uh, element scene in a a game? I don't know. You've covered some of the the great ones. Um, For fostering role play, I, I... it goes back to something you said where combat shouldn't just be combat. It should show who the characters are. I'm a big believer in having people role play through combats. It shouldn't just be a tactical exercise. Even if it's just, you know, the little, uh, the little jokes that Porthos is making <laughs> or when Aramis, you know, blocks the two blades that the guards stab each other. You know, he steps back and says, go with God, makes the sign of the cross. Oh, right? yeah, like, such a cool moment. I think combat can be role-play scenes, and I encourage people to to do that. I strive to do that when I'm a player, because I love 
interjecting that context to the scenes. Yeah. I love that about Aramis so much, like how he took death seriously. Like that was really, really great. Yeah. Um, and I think more and more I'm enjoying playing games that have specifically defined um, action and not action scenes. So mm. uh, they'll, they'll call them different things. Um, Cortex Plus uh, does this with its action scenes and I forget what the, the middle scene or what the, the interstitial scene is called. Uh, Bleeds in the Dark does it because they have the the heist and the planning phase and there's even the cooldown. Yeah, the downtime. Um, actions, the downtime. Right? Mm-hmm. So like, again, uh, 90% of, for me, 90% of roleplay advice comes down to communicate clearly, <laughs> talk to people, mm-hmm. you know, set the expectations of like, this is going to be a uh, roleplay heavy scene and the thing that we're going to do is, you know, discuss whatever or, you know, give players a hook. Give them give them a bit of a guide to set the scene. Don't just let it be, you are in a tavern, what happens? You know, mm-hmm. um, give them a nudge in the right direction, even if it's just a talking scene. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things I used to do as a kid when I was in school, I, we didn't do them very often, but I, to this day, I, this is like third grade, and I remember it because I had so much fun, is when they would give you a sheet of paper and it would have just like like a J-hook line, and they would say, turn that into something. Like they'd give you just like an, a right angle or like maybe like, it looks sort of like maybe the butt of a gun, whatever, a spaceship, and then you drew everything else around it and you try to make that into something Ooh. bigger. I loved that element of here's just enough structure so that you're not handed a blank sheet of paper, but you can do whatever you want with it. And I think that's the heart of what PK is saying is like give a little bit of structure, but then let them take it wherever they want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right, right. All right. I got two more points and then my list is done and then I'll give both of you a chance to, to you know, whatever else you want to talk about. I love the way that Aramis, again, in the role play scene, what I, what I think happened is that Aramis's character was dealt a killing blow. And then the character's like, wait, wait, I have this background thing that lets me re-roll my save or, or makes you re-roll the attack. So rather than, the, like, in my mind, that was a retcon at the table because if someone's like, oh, wait, you have this thing, and his ability to bring in this background element of this cross that he always wears being the thing that saved him, pure genius. I absolutely love that from, again, from a game standpoint. But I also really like D'Artagnan's arc. Because if you look at his art from the beginning of the story, he was always self-assured, overconfident. I mean, he he got into three duels with three of the best swordsmen in the world on his first day in Paris. And what happens at the end of the movie? He's bested. He's going against the man who killed his father. He loses that duel. And it wasn't until Athos gave him the a hand that he was able to overcome and defeat the man who killed his father. So that basically learning that you can't do it all by yourself, the motto of the Musketeers, again, from a movie standpoint, it's really well done. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So anything you want to add to either of those things or just, again, anything else in the movie you want to talk about? And then we'll probably get close to wrapping up. Right, right. I actually want to say like both things with Aramis, like taking out the cross and D'Artagnan's arc. I feel can both be explained by a really fun mechanic that I like about Hearts of Ulin. So in Hearts of Ulin, when you fight against someone, so it's a PPTA game, but there's just a single move that you do when you duel with someone, right? So it makes it really fast. You focus on 
the role playing more, you focus on the swift action, right? And what's really cool is if you fight against someone who's above your scale, there's no way you can win. So the only reason that you would roll is to see if you have a say in how you lose, right? And so for me, when Aramis like made that roll, like he knew he was going up against a cardinal that was above and wasn't of his scale, right? And so there's because in the in the game you can also increase the scale every time you fight against a person, every time you watch them fight. So this is definitely what happened between uh, D'Artagnan and the and the captain, right, for sure. And so when Aramis was like, okay, so you rolled high enough to say how you lose, what happens? And the player just says dramatically, I, I get shot and I fall to the ground, right? And all the mm. players are like, what? But you won, you won the roll and you, are you dying on purpose? What's happening, right? And the player's like, no, I'm just, I'm just lying down there. I'm not, I'm not moving. And Porthos is like, oh, I'm coming over, right? <laughs> like, or, yeah. or it could even been, he technically didn't roll well, but in Hearts of Ulan, you get to spend bonds that you have with each other in order to affect the rolls and modify them. And so Porthos is like, I run over to you and I grab you and I'm going to spend this bond, right, in order to help you. And so that's when Aramis is like, that's when I pull out, you know, I take this deep breath and you pull out and you see the cross, right, that stopped the bullet. So that would have been mm-hmm. a really cool moment. Um, because in, so in the game, there's like a lot of dueling in Hearts of Wulin and even losing can be really fun, which I think is like hard to pull off in a lot of games. Yeah. And in the Three Musketeers, I thought there was a lot of fun losing, right? That really led up to like more intense, awesome drama, uh, for sure. But yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, some of the best moments only happen because of a, of a previous mm-hmm. loss. Exactly. Yeah. And then actually, I do also want to mention, because I'm somewhat famous in my circles for saying, yes, there's always a chandelier. <laughs> and in this movie, yes, there was a chandelier. There has to be a chandelier, right? Has to be. Especially if a player asks, is there a chandelier in this room? Yeah. Yes. Yes, totally. there is. Totally. What are you wanting to do with it? <laughs> Let's see that. All right. So, PK, anything else from you, sir? Uh, so, one thing that I love about the Musketeers is they are archetypical characters. They are all, like... And granted, it's because they've been around for you know, almost 200 years. So people have taken those characters and built on them, expanded them, used them as templates. But that's what makes them fun to play. is because you can take this archetypical character and say, but I'm doing a little bit of a twist on it. And so it gives you a shorthand for being able to convey what you want to do. And I think this movie did that in a really interesting way. Um, one thing that Aramis has, clearly his character has spent, um, progression points of whatever stripe on being able to show up in a scene in disguise. Yeah, so good. So because, good. because he does he it does, twice, does. <laughs> right? He, it's not just, um, rescuing <laughs> D'Artagnan, but he also just shows up in priest's mm-hmm. robes for the final confrontation with, uh, with the cardinal, like out of nowhere. Like the, it is, it's the middle of the big set piece action scene. They haven't really checked in with Aramis in in a few minutes, and then he just shows up on a boat dressed as yeah, a so priest. Great. Awesome, awesome. It's just like okay, that's that's so pulpy <laughs> and and fun. I, I played an atomic robo game once where <laughs> that was one of the stunts that someone had. They could spend yep. a benny, they could just or fate point, they could just show up in a scene in a disguise. It was amazing. Awesome, right. awesome. Yeah, and clearly Aramis has, has taken <laughs> yeah. it. So I think that's 
my big takeaway is even if you're playing an archetypical character, find a way to make it fun, twist it around, enjoy it. And then the other thing is when you see a movie like this that is so has such a big cast, like big named cast, right? If you look at this cast, it's oops all bangers, like all the way down. Because it's it's Tim Curry, it's Chris O'Donnell who is huge in the nineties, and then uh the three musketeers of Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland, and Oliver Platt, like all huge names in the nineties, massively famous. It can be really fun to say your character is being played by an actor. Mm. It's something that I started doing, I don't know, five or six years ago when I made a character and I was like, oh, and by the way, this character is played by Claudia Black, right? Like I was, um, just because that was the image in my head and it just also really conveys to people the, the personality and everything without me having to be a good enough actor to play Claudia Black myself. Mm. By setting that expectation, it sort of conveyed a lot. I love that, actually. I think that's a great uh, shorthand to help people get an idea of who you are. And it kind of fills in the spot. Like I said, you know, we're none of us, at least I assume, are professional actors. So it kind of helps smooth in those rough places and let people see the finished image that you're going for without doing all that work yourself. So I think that's a brilliant suggestion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I just want to say, like, I think absolute bonus points for having a really... I love this song so much, All for Love by Brian Adams, Rob Stewart, and Sting. Another set of Three Musketeers. I just love these three mm. together. I just love this song so much. Uh, when I watched this movie again with my partner, he was so shocked when that song came on. He's like, what's what's going on? And I'm like, magic. It's pure magic. <laughs> I just want to say like how much I love that. <laughs> that's that's an avenue of Jamin that I've never really done very well, and that is incorporate like soundtrack and music i know some teams who do that like they're constantly playing sounds in the background they have themes for villains i just i don't think i have a skill set to do that but i think it's something that can be great i recommend the children of dune tv series has a really great soundtrack that works really well for rpgs as a player Mm. i have always rolled critical successes with this one particular song when he summons the (laughs) worms like without fail so (laughs) but yeah i love i love i love using music in games for sure yeah, I am not wired for music in that way. When I watch a movie, the music is almost always the last thing I notice. It it often just doesn't even register, which is unfortunate because like there's some great music out there, but it just it's not right, how I'm right. wired. Because you're focusing on the characters and stuff, yeah. Right. And also like I'm much more of a visual person than an auditory mm-hmm. person. That said, one thing the GM had us do in a game I'm in currently is create a playlist Yeah, that's a good for one. our character nice. that is sort of a personal soundtrack. Yeah, cool. Just to communicate to the other players who you are and what your character's whole thing is. Yeah. Which I thought was really neat because in this modern age, you can either just share a list or you can create a playlist and actually share it to other people so that they can listen to it on their own devices through Spotify or Apple Music, whatever. Uh, so it was, it was a really interesting way to sort of get in the head of the other players yeah. and understand what, how they're approaching their characters. Yeah, yeah. That's and very I, and, cool. and, right. And as a GM, that's happened sometimes where like, 
I was running a playtest of Apocalypse Keys, and then one of my players was like obsessively listening to the new Taylor Swift album at the time. And then, and then they were like, yeah, so this song comes on, right? When my character walks in and like creates a whole moment. And then during the break, everybody went to listen to the song, right? And they came back going like, yes, this is amazing. So I think that's another great thing to sort of like, even if you don't actually play the music, just to introduce it, like there's a game called Lighthearted, which is an, a game that's inspired by the 80s. And I had so much fun going like, okay, I get out of the car, right? And he's he's all long hair and big eyes and Material Girl by Madonna comes on. <laughs> and everyone got it, right? So, like, Fantastic. but yeah. <laughs> all right, so we'll close things here. Thank you both. I, I had an amazing time. I think this is a great episode for people to listen to. It's a really fun movie. And I think there was some just straight gold GMing advice buried in this episode. So I hope people will listen and take that, uh, take something from it. Just as a reminder, you can find me, Michael, on Twitter at the RPG Academy. We've mentioned a bunch of games this episode, so I'll be very self-serving here at the end. I am currently designing a game called Action 12 Cinema that is exactly for this type of game movie type of a situation. It's not out yet. Hopefully someday it will be. But when it is, if you wanted to play this type of movie as a game, I think you could do worse than Action 12 Cinema. Uh, please consider supporting what we do here by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy and check the show notes for links to all the different games that we talked about today, as well as any of the varying projects that my guests are working on. Uh, so Ray, again, where can people find you in any specific place you'd like to send them for some of your work, please? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Temporal Hiccup. You can also find me on itch.io at Temporal Hiccup. So on Twitter, I tend to, I love engaging with folks in the TTRPG space. I love talking about games we like to play and game design. And I also like to post a lot of Sailor Moon GIFs. You can also find me on the Gauntlet podcast where I get to talk with my amazing co-host. We have a rotating cast and we talk about all the cool games that we got to play throughout the month. And I'm also working on a ton of games, like I mentioned, but also on my own PPTA and Forge in the Dark games. You can find out more on patreon.com slash swordqueengames uh, if you'd like to support me there if you are so inclined. But yeah, and I'd love to see you online. <laughs> Fantastic. And then PK. Uh, I'm PK Sullivan. You can find me on Twitter at PK underscore Sullivan or on YouTube for my cooking channel, Breakfast for Pancakes. That's the name of the channel. You probably know me from my design work on Fate of Cthulhu, which is now on, which a new version of all the modules and packs are now up on Roll20. So give those a shot. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, but Three Rocketeers and Firefly are my big games. I'm not really active on anything uh, with any projects currently in the RPG space, but give it a shot. All right. Very cool. Once again, thank you both for being here. I super appreciate it. Uh, and then just a reminder to come back next month when our film studies will be A Knight's Tale featuring James D'Amato and Scott Malthouse. Nice. Another good one. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, that's another great movie as well. So <laughs> thanks, everybody. And we will see you next time. Oh, I almost forgot. Tom always yells at me. But just remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thanks. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize, but there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. 
You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy, or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.